2: I'm Tom Perumian, KTSA News.
0: Good afternoon, Jack Riccardi at 550 and 1071 KTSA. This Hunter Biden thing is big news, and they're reporting it like he's a regular person, like a regular person who's in this much trouble and somehow is offered a plea deal and goes into court thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead guilty to some lo- lesser things and, and I'm going to, you know, take my medicine and um but i'm going to be so relieved that i got past it and and moved on with my life they're covering it like that's who he is hunter biden isn't in the kind of trouble i would be you would be if we had done or, or were alleged to have done all the things he's done and um what happened today as best i understand it and we're going to bring in one of our legal experts here in about uh 25 minutes or so but He was supposed to go to court today and um, accept this plea deal that we told you about uh, a couple of weeks ago, where he would plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges uh, and um, get a diversion on the felony gun charge. Instead, he had to plead not guilty to the existing charges because the plea deal was pulled back. Uh The judge in the case, Mary Ellen Norieka, did not accept the plea agreement, it says here, questioning the constitutionality of it. The judge pressed federal prosecutors on the investigation and questioned whether there was the possibility for future charges against Hunter Biden, asked prosecutors if Hunter Biden was currently under investigation. They said, yeah, there is the possibility of future charges, and yes, he is still under investigation. They didn't say exactly what for. But the judge's position was, well, if the government could still bring charges, and the Foreign Agent Registry Act is one of the things that's being mentioned, uh, then the judge said, well, then I can't, um, we can't, we can't have this deal. And uh, there was a per- apparently a period uh, where the the two sides were given a, a, an extra, like, emergency negotiating conference that went on for twenty or thirty minutes. Um, the judge left the courtroom. They dickered. And ultimately, uh, there was not a deal that Judge Noriega could accept as constructed. She repeatedly said she was worried about the constitutionality of the diversion thing for the felony gun charge um, and uh, the fact that he's under ongoing uh, investigation. Um, We learned something else last night that's interesting about this uh, case. Um, Apparently the a apparently a woman called the um the federal court and impersonated a federal prosecutor and said that an amicus brief which is a friend of the court brief that was filed in the case and it was specifically the brief that contains like 400 pages of the IRS whistleblower testimony um this, this woman called and she said that she was um, with the prosecutor, you know, like a staffer, an assistant, and we need to pull that down. that needs to be taken off the, the court's docket. Uh, it's a sensitive document. Um, it turns out her name's Jessica Bengals. It turns out that Jessica Bengals works for the law firm that Hunter Biden has retained. So she was literally impersonating the other side. She works for the defense, but she impersonated the prosecution. Um, and uh, that didn't make the judge too happy when that happened last night or when we learned of it last night. I guess it happened yesterday. So all of all of which is to say that um, Hunter Biden still isn't in the kind of trouble you would be in or I would be in uh, if it was uh, us. But... Um, it's This is interesting to see how this is unfolding. Now, he's apparently got some um, conditions of release. Uh, he can't violate any, any existing laws right now. He must cooperate with giving over DNA samples if requested. They can monitor him for drug use. He can't possess a firearm. He has to come back to court if at any time he is summoned to court. Um, remember, though, that this is a guy that lives at the White House, they even told him one of his conditions is he has to try to find a job. Imagine telling a man in his 50s who lives at the White House, who flies around in Air Force One, who rides around in, in the in the black suburbans, that that he, he really needs to hit the pavement. I mean, what a loser. But at the same time, what a winner. How are they going to get to him? Who's going to catch him in a parole violation? He lives at the White House. This isn't like some... This is some like some movie where they'll uh you know the the cops will drive by in a street corner and say, hey what's he doing here you know th- he's Hunter Biden it also turns out more shenanigans that there's a guy um the story broke last night i thought it was really interesting uh there's a, there's a guy named Alexander Mackler who um works in the uh Delaware US attorney's office that's uh one of the offices um that's uh, investigating this. And this Alexander Mackler, who just happens to be in that office now, has worked for Joe Biden in a number of capacities for many years. He was press secretary when Biden was a senator. He was a legal counsel to Biden when he was vice president. He managed Bo Biden's uh, Delaware political campaign in 2010. He worked in the Biden-Harris transition in 2020. So, I I mean... I I I I know this is all big news today and uh we're we're going to talk about it but uh, between you and me the dude lives at the white house every string is being pulled uh he should never have been given a plea deal he's not in any kind of jeopardy uh donald trump will be in prison sooner than hunter biden will be and and we all know this and the I guess the I guess on the left they're just outraged that it even got this weird. Like, on CNN, they were saying... They seemed almost offended on CNN. When this news broke, uh, they seemed almost offended. I wasn't even meaning to watch CNN, but I was someplace where it was on. And uh, the the anchors were angry at the exposure of Hunter Biden. Like, how could his lawyers have let this happen? How could they go into that courthouse not knowing? How could they not understand? How was this deal not nailed down? It was like they... It wasn't just political bias, like they're pro Team Biden. They they seemed like like this was their their friend, and they and they felt for him. And I get the tribalism of politics, but you can be as you can be as lib as you want to be. You can be progressive. You can be far left. You can check all the boxes. You can have all the right stickers on the back of your Subaru. But you know, Hunter Biden is a skank, right? You know this, right? I mean. I, I know I understand the whole fighting for the tribe and all that, but but this guy's NG. I mean he he's a he's a horrible person. And I just to see people work up this I'm sure none of them know him. Probably none of them on, on that desk had ever even ever met him. But they were all worked up like something had happened to a buddy of theirs. You know, they were like they were hacked off that he would be put through this. It's just awful. Mm. 210 599 Another legal story today. Have you heard about this? Kevin Spacey, the actor, not guilty in his criminal assault trial in London. He was on trial for allegedly uh, sexually assaulting, uh, I think it was four different guys, over a period in the early 2000s. And it was everything from groping and touching to, in one instance, um oral sex on a man that was asleep or unconscious. So Kevin Spacey at this point has now been acquitted of the criminal charges and has won the civil cases um involved in these allegations. So over a multiple year period when he was taken off House of Cards, when he was not cast in any movies, and remember if you if you do remember At one time, as recently as the late 90s and and early 2000s, I mean, Kevin Spacey was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. And if he was in a movie, he was usually the top-billed actor in the movie. Um, So then all these accusations came forward, and he has always said, I did these things consensually. I was with people who were gay and I'm gay and I'm I'm this was all consensual and I'm horrified that they are coming back uh all these years later and saying um that I I victimized them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Elton John testified on his behalf uh in the British trial. Um now, I don't know. I wasn't there for any of this. I was reading through the story today and y- in in your head you're doing the math and you're like, okay, so The accusations against him are are from many years ago, in some cases 20 years ago. Uh, The accused, uh, the accusers uh, were adults and are adults. Um, They didn't report these things at the time. They came forward later. Uh, This batch of accusers came forward after the U.S. case with the accuser in the U.S., uh, that accuser is also an actor i can 't remember his name, but he 's i think he 's on one of the star trek spin offs so uh, do you get the sense that when there 's a cluster of accusations like this it, where there 's smoke there 's fire, or do you get the sense that when there 's a cluster of accusations like this there 's gold digging there 's people sensing an opportunity? There's a lot of money to be made. There's there's this guy's down for the count. Uh, now he's got the reputation. Um, and I know a lot of people, and this is hotly debated and it's very controversial. But a lot of people are like, if you didn't report it at the time and you didn't come forward at the time, and we're not talking about children or people that wouldn't know how to or where to uh, report a crime, if you waited 10, 12, 15, uh, 20 years, um, that calls into question your, your accusation. And I, I think you have to give that argument some room because it also looks like it would be a really easy way to just take someone down. Remember now, we live in, a, in, a, in an era, in a cancel culture era, where a technique that is proven to work It's going to be used over and over again. So whether this was Kevin Spacey's previous crimes coming home to roost or just a a, a kind of a takedown technique, I don't really know. But I mean, I I wonder about it because of what we've seen and what we're seeing. Uh, They were talking about uh, Governor Abbott on The View. Have you heard this? This was yesterday. You know, uh, Abbott is uh, fighting with the federal government over those... uh, anti-immigration floaties, the uh the the border buoys, and he's saying we gotta have them and they're effective, they're working, and the federal government is saying they're unsafe. And they were talking about it on the view and and Joy Behar was ripping into Abbott and she was saying it was uh, sadistic um and monstrous uh that he would put these things uh in the water and uh, so forth and so on. And I just had an image of Joy Behar. Imagine Joy Behar on an airplane. And she, of course, is sitting in first class. And you know how on airplanes, first class has that curtain? It's just some cheap little curtain between the first class cabin and the rest of the plane, right? And most of us are sitting behind the curtain, (laughs) in our, you know, cheap seats. I'll bet you anything Joy Behar is one of those people that really, really is big on the curtain. Like, she doesn't want people coming into the first-class cabin unless they belong there. Get out of here. Who are you? I'll bet when Joy Behar is in a swimming pool, she doesn't want people coming too close to her. I'll bet if somebody put up some little floaties to uh, give her the private area in the pool, she'd be all for that. So people like her, they love barriers for themselves, but then they love to cast aspersions when barriers are erected elsewhere. They act like they they act like they don't believe, like there shouldn't be any, any no one should ever have a barrier. There should never be a, a fence, a wall, a, a dividing line, a border. But you know that people like her are the most hypocritical because they're the most that they they have so much love for the being in the first class area, for being on the right side of the velvet rope, for being in the VIP tent at the uh, whatever the event is. I mean, you know that. You know that about her. So she was, she, they were going off on Abbott today. And if the view is ripping you, you're right. You're doing exactly the right thing. You're right where you need to be. It's the surest way to know you're doing the right thing. Uh, oh, and I love this. I don't know if you heard this story or not today. Um, one of our new uh, progressive uh, members of the House from Texas. He was a city councilman in Austin before he was elected, Greg Kazar. He's considered part of the squad. I guess they're taking men now. Um, Greg Kazar announced that he was going on a thirst strike in support of a federal heat rule to protect workers who work in high temperatures around the country. So he announced a thirst strike because there needs to be federal laws and federal protections for people that work in the heat. Okay. All right. He didn't make it very long. He he only made it about six hours. He went six hours without drinking water. Or I think it was six or seven, one of those. I, I've gone six or seven hours without drinking water in the course of a regular day. It's called a regular day for me. What? That's your That's your thirst strike? I'd hate to see his hunger strike. What is that like, skipping lunch? Yeah, seven-hour thirst strike, and then he broke the strike. Nothing says participation trophy like that. What a hero, Greg Kazar! All right, so what do you think about all this? Two ten five nine nine fifty-five fifty-five. Poll question: Do you approve or disapprove of Abbott's floating border wall? I'm not kidding when I say. If the view is against it, I already know I'm for it. I don't even know. What, I don't have to even know what it is. <laughs> they're the they're the uh, underwriter laboratory seal of approval for a common sense idea. They'll all they'll never let you down. At, at the view, they'll always be on the wrong side. So we got that. Uh, we get the Kevin Spacey thing. Of course, we get the Hunter thing. Uh, Martha McCallum and uh, Juan Williams kind of mixed it up on Fox today. He had tried to you know being being a Democrat, he had tried to knock down the whole deal with the Biden scandals, and the spin from the Democrats now is, well, you know, this is all, this has never really ever been proven, and it's just hearsay, and by the way, remember, it was uh, was the Trump Justice Department that investigated it, and Martha McCallum today, I don't know what was going on, what she had in her coffee, but she was not having any of Juan Williams today, take a listen to this
3: those pieces of evidence, it says, well, they'll never find the five million dollars we gave to one Biden and five million we gave to another because they have this very intricate setup of all these bank accounts, which was substantiated by where the money was going when they tracked down, you know, following the money is one of the best ways to get evidence. So I, I think it's a bit of a stretch on your part to suggest that there isn't any evidence here, that there aren't numbers here. There's a lot of explaining that the Bidens have to do. Well, about let me, what has been ongoing. let COVID me respond
1: while. to you. Well, let me respond to you. That 1023 comes from secondhand information from a source, right? Secondhand. So it's not firsthand. And secondly, what you get is it was never, ever proven out by, because it was reviewed by the Trump Justice Mm. Department, and you have the Trump-appointed head of the FBI looking at it. They came to the conclusion there was nothing there. And the idea that then Comer says, Oh, I want to open this to the public because it feeds the speculation. That no, really listen, is a one, political one, agenda.
3: I, I just I can't let you say something that's not true. The investigation we know, Bill Barr said they looked at it. They wanted to pursue it. They sent it to the Pennsylvania office that had some jurisdiction over this investigation. And, you know, there are reports now that they were finding that it was credible, that they were in the middle of it. It wasn't put to bed at all. And I want to get Tommy back in here.
0: I love but, the know, fact that. You you get, they're now at the point where they're citing the Trump Justice Department. Remember now, when Trump was president, people like Juan Williams, that's a completely illegitimate presidency, and it's it's cronies and crooks and, and ne'er-do-wells, and uh, Barr is an idiot and a moron, and a, you know. Now, because the Hunter thing was investigated during, during, although not exclusively during, but during Trump's presidency, now... Trump's Justice Department is the gold standard. Oh man, if they didn't find anything, there's nothing there. These are the these are crack people. I, pardon the pun. I mean, I there's they're reduced to citing that. That's going to be their that's going to be their takeaway. That's going to be their get out of jail card. Uh, well, you know, uh, Trump had a chance. And by the way, th- there is a kernel of truth to this, which is I don't know how. In the four years that Trump was president, I don't know what what was going on with his, his staff. And, 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 of course, he had, what, three or four different attorneys general. Um, yeah, th- that was a missed opportunity. Uh, they probably really didn't believe Joe Biden was politically coming back, but... People have known about Hunter Biden for years and years and years, going back to when when Obama picked Joe for vice president. Uh, I just I do think they missed an opportunity, but I don't think they gave Hunter Biden a you know a, a great a great uh, A plus report card because it was the Trump DOJ developing story today, the unraveling of the Hunter Biden plea deal, uh, which means that he goes into court and pleads guil- uh, pleads not guilty. Two charges instead of pleading guilty to some greatly reduced, uh, charges. And, um, we wanted to kind of get a, a, a perspective on this from our good friend and former Bear County District Attorney and retired Judge Steve Hilbig, joining the show now in the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners newsmaker line. So, Judge, um, the, the plea deal was publicized weeks ago, um, presumably uh we didn't obviously we didn't know everything that was in it but um how how rare is it to go into court thinking you've got it and have it come apart like this on the day of the court appearance
4: well in many ways, what's happened today raises more questions than provides answers. It is dang rare i mean uh, I'll tell you, I was on a judge on a trial court uh, for about three and a half years, and then of course obviously had about a 45-year career in criminal law, uh, and it is extremely, extremely rare to have a judge uh, reject a plea bargain. Now, of course, she did not do that in this case. What is very unusual is that apparently I cannot find a written plea agreement anywhere. And from the judge's questions, it sounds as if there was not a written plea agreement. And, And, Jack, I will tell you that that is... That occurs in every plea bargain case. You have a Mm -hmm. written agreement that says, here's what the government's going to do, here's what the defendant is going to do. And so by her questions such as, well, now, is he given immunity for anything else other than what he's pleading to? The defense said, oh, yes, he is. And the, and the government said, oh, no, he ain't. Right. So that was one area where the judge was saying, well, wait a second, fellas, what is it? Why haven't y'all worked this out? Because once again, in in almost all plea bargains, you're going to have something that addresses whether or not other crimes are taken into consideration in terms of immunity being offered for those other crimes. So that's why I'm I'm thinking that, number one, there was no written plea bargain because that would have been spelled out in a written plea bargain. The second thing that the judge had problems with was they were trying to inject her into the role of being the uh, fact finder in the diversion program. Now, the diversion program is a creation of the prosecution. And and the prosecutor is the one who normally says, okay, you've complied with it, we're going to dismiss cases, or you haven't complied with it, we're going to go forward and prosecute you. Apparently, what the parties had agreed to was that the judge would make the decision as to whether or not Hunter complied with the uh, pretrial diversion, and that's where the judge was saying, well, well, now, wait a second, I'm not supposed to play that role, that's that diversion program is a creature of the prosecution. Why are you trying to interject me into making that uh, that decision? Uh, and the defense counsel said, "Well, we want we wanted a neutral uh, decision maker and ter- to determine whether or not he in fact had complied with the uh, uh, pretrial diversion." And so that's the other issue that she raised in saying, "Well, you don't have show me where this has been done before," and the government couldn't show her that.
0: How how much of the blame for this would you lay at the prosecution's feet versus at the defense counsel's feet?
4: I hate to say this, but I think that there was a collusion between both of them trying to make this nebulous so that people wouldn't couldn't really point out what the plea bargain was. It, it, going back to every prosecutor knows, every defense attorney, if I'm acting as a defense attorney, I want to have it in writing. What my what my client is receiving for his sure because yeah. that's what protects him, and so no. since because you're walking in, me in I there, you're walking
0: me in there to tell me to plead guilty, and I'm going to ask you a hundred different ways. Now, are you are you sure this is what I need to do? And the only way you can reassure me is if you know that this is the best thing,
4: right? And you know, and and you know again what to expect, and and so I could be wrong. There could be a written plea bargain somewhere, but from the way that the hearing developed, it sure doesn't sound like it. And once again, then that kind of leads me to believe, why would you, again, take this highly unusual step of not having a written plea agreement?
0: Isn't there a problem if you're the DOJ with simultaneously trying to have a plea agreement and at the same time, Admitting that the ev- that the investigation is ongoing, w- no. Why, would, why because, would the DOJ do that?
4: Well, because you could have a plea agreement that, in essence, uh, carves out one area, and we say, okay, we got that area settled, and, okay. and maybe they were not to the point where uh, we're going to have a global settlement because both sides were not necessarily. Uh, convinced as to what they had because if that investigation's ongoing as a defense attorney you're not gonna plead something somebody to something that the government couldn't prove. And and by the same token, if you're the government, you're not gonna give somebody immunity or give them a pass on something that you can prove. So yeah, it's unusual, but it sounded like that the Biden team was going to try to play this as, okay, we've taken care of this, everything's settled, Hunter doesn't have to worry anymore. Uh, why are y'all still out trying to subpoena him on all these other things or subpoena his records? Because all of this has been settled, and that's kind of what it seems like that the Hunter team was trying to do.
0: Talking with uh, retired Judge Steve Hilbig on KTSa right now about the Hunter Biden uh, court appearance today, which did not result in what was expected, which was a plea agreement. So, um, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, Judge, I mean, he's not—he's not some guy sitting on the curb smoking a cigarette. This is this is a man that lives in the White House flies on Air Force One, uh, is in the Secret Service bubble everywhere he goes. Um, How do you enforce the um, terms of his release? How is there any observable way to know if he violates a firearms law or uses a narcotic, all these things they said he can't do during this period? How in the world is that enforceable?
4: Well, because there's there is usually what's called a pretrial services division in federal court, and they have the ability to enforce the bond conditions. So, for instance, are the release conditions. So, if the judge says you shall be drug tested, then then they call him up and say, "Okay, get your rear end in here uh, within mm-hmm. you know 20 uh, within four hours, and we're going to drug test you."
0: Mm-hmm.
4: They don't have to go out and inspect his housing and everything like that. So there are ways if those sorts of conditions were ordered. Uh, but again, it kind of goes back to like on the diversion side of it, who was going to supervise that? Well, that's up to the DOJ. And yeah. it seems like right now that we can't trust the decisions they've made previously in this case. And so therefore, I kind of doubted that they would be very vigorous and had the diversion program gone forward that they would be very vigorous and enforced. Yeah, those call
0: divisions. me a cynic, but I don't I don't feel like he's gonna be uh suddenly uh called to uh pee into a cup. I just I d I can't be- I just can't believe that. And I, I thought it was mean that the judge said he needed to pursue employment when we all know he's a painter. I <laughs> I, I thought that was just really cruel, you know.
4: Well I, I heard he went to Michael's to get some more paint and canvas. <laughs> <laughs> now um it, real quick because
0: it, you you've been on all sides of, of the law you've been a prosecutor you've been an attorney you've been obviously been a judge um the judge's handling of this uh real quick what's your what's your read on that put yourself in her shoes how 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 would how would you have felt about this how do you think she handled it
4: well uh, i think she handled it well but i think there are some people that are reading more into it than than what she said What she did was break it down or refuse to accept it on some very technical issues. The extent of immunity, who's going to be enforcing or their their attempt to have her enforce the diversion. Those are very technical issues. Those are not, hey, I think there's been something fishy going on here, Mm -hmm. and I think we need to take another look at whether or not he ought to get this plea bargain in the first Mm -hmm. place. Or she didn't say anything about how she thought that the plea bargain was contrary to the public interest. So, you know, some people are kind of thinking, well, maybe she's hesitating because the the testimony of the whistleblowers or things like that, I didn't get that sense. Now, you know, it may have been that she feels that way and hid her motives, but the only reason she kind of busted it right now is on the technical issues of immunity and why should yep. she be handling the diversion program.
0: I wondered, too, how a judge would feel about learning. We told the story a little while ago of the, uh, the woman that works for Hunter's Law Firm calling up, posing as a member of the prosecution, asking the court to take down the amicus brief that has the IRS whistleblower testimony in it. In other words, pretending to be the prosecution, really working for the defense. To get a document taken out of the case, um, is that the kind, i mean that sounds extraordinary or rare, and what would that do to a judge's thinking?
4: Well, it would make me hold a hearing. I understand that the lady claims that she, from the uh, law firm claims that she talked to two different clerks and there was a misunderstanding, and she's mm. supposedly given an affidavit to that mm-hmm. regard. I wouldn't accept. If I was a judge, I'm not going to accept that affidavit. You come into my court. I'm putting you under oath, and I'm asking questions. Yeah, I mean, you you deal with this all day.
0: These clerks are not going to make a mistake like that. That's that's like mistaking, you know, up for down.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, it could be, but it's highly highly unusual. And and again, why would? (laughs) It's also like why would somebody be requesting that information to be withdrawn in the first place? I mean that that's the illogical right. part of it because right. if I filed it, I'm not going to turn around in two hours later and say, "Oh, could you please take it out?"
0: <laughs> this case has it all. Uh, Judge, we appreciate your time as always. Thank you so much for uh, that, and look forward to speaking with you again.:
4: Well, thanks for having me on, and y'all have a great afternoon.
0: All right, you too. If you've not heard, um, this singer passed away today, uh, Sinead O'Connor, Irish uh, singer who had this huge hit in 1990, uh, which was a Prince song that she uh, sang and took all the way to number one, and I think it was even the top song of the year that year, Nothing Compares to You. Sinead O'Connor was 56, her family announcing her uh, passing. Um, She... She was a, a very unique uh, individual, obviously. Um, everybody remembers that moment in, I think, 92 or 93 when she was the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, and uh, that was when that was when pretty much everybody watched that show on Saturday nights, and it was a big, big deal that she, in the course of one of her performances on the show, ripped a photograph of uh, then-Pope John Paul II in half and said something about fight the real enemy. Uh, it was a firestorm of controversy. Frank Sinatra said he'd like to kick her ass. Um, but you know what's really interesting, and I'd forgotten about this till I was reading one of the obituaries today about Sinead O'Connor. Um, when she did that, when she ripped that photograph, which she has said many times in the ensuing years, she's glad she did it, and uh, she was making a statement. But when she did that, um, NBC banned her for life from their entire network. And that was like 92 or 93. So imagine 30 years ago, an American television network either respected or feared the Catholics and Christians in its audience enough to say, we've got to make sure she never appears on our network again. And I'm sorry to say that if it happened today, I don't think anything like that would happen. I don't think there'd be any call for it, and I don't think anybody would offer to do it. That's, that's a big change in not very many years, 30 years. Um, so I, I had a couple of angry emails about Kevin Spacey, um, Brad says, so I guess if people don't report a crime right away, they're lying. And Anna says, well, I guess we can see who the biggest Kevin Spacey fan is. And she said some other things that were, that were nice. I, I'm, I, I am a Kevin Spacey fan at, of his acting. I am make no secret of that. My favorite all-time movie is a movie he stars in called L.A. Confidential. What I was pointing out about the Kevin Spacey verdict today, and if you've not heard, he was found not guilty in his sexual assault trial. Um, and and parenthetically, let me say that Ke- I believe, unless I'm missing something, that Kevin Spacey has won every court case brought against him on the sex stuff. So I don't know if he did these things or not. By his own admission, um, he is promiscuous, and it may be that he did these things, uh, or it may be, as his defense was that th- these are people he was friendly with who have turned on him and are trying to get money from him here here's here's where i was going with that cuz again i don't know i wasn't there i wasn't at the party i wasn't in these places if you wanted a way to cancel a prominent person in the entertainment world and if that person is gay or is promiscuous, if that person's uh, coveted or envied, this would be the way to do it. That's all I'm saying. We live in a cancel culture era. Kevin Spacey has been canceled. Okay, he'll probably get some roles now, and I think he is in a movie that's coming out or has come out, but I mean, his career was completely cratered at one point. And if he did these things, deservedly so. But what if you were trying to take somebody down? Maybe their politics were not to your liking. Maybe they didn't check all the boxes. This guy does, by the way. Kevin Spacey's a big time liberal. He's reliably, capital D, Democratic and progressive and all that. But if you were in that business uh, and you got in somebody's crosshairs, all, all I'm saying is people coming forward and talking about a party 15 years ago Eighteen years ago, twelve years ago, and saying um, we were in a dark room, and there was no one else, and this happened and that happened. I, this would be a, this would be a foolproof, ironclad way to cancel people. I, I'm pointing that out because that that is something <clears throat> that I think could happen. It probably is not what happened to him. Probably, if I had to guess, and I'm only guessing. Probably what happened to him is either he did these things, or they were consensual, and the people that were participating in them are now ashamed of what something, of 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 whatever they did or agreed to do in the past. Maybe they thought Kevin Spacey could help them. Maybe they were starstruck. Uh, Maybe they've gotten smarter and more mature in their later years, and now they abhor what they did. People get like that. We all have things we're not proud of in our past. I, I don't know. But my comment is simply that this is a tactic that you could see used again. It's worth keeping in mind the next time somebody's accused. we got our uh, top ten countdown from the year 1973 coming up this hour, and you can always join the show uh, and talk about all the things we're talking about right now at 210-599-5555. Uh, this, uh, this happened today, kind of alarming. Uh, listen to this was kind of like a news gaggle with reporters. Listen to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell cut number nine
4: after finishing the NDA uh, this week It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of. Uh, uh,
5: are you
6: good? Mitch. Okay, Mitch. Yeah. Anything else you want to say? I'm sure it's good back to you. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say anything else to the press? Okay. Donnie Johnson. I'll take that. Well, let's go back to you.
3: Go ahead, John.
0: Yeah, they had to take him, uh... Don. You saw the audio, right? I mean, they they basically had to walk him away from the microphones, right?
6: Yes, yes, they did.
0: Um, so hopefully he's okay. I I don't, I I mean, he, he is, um, he's up there. He's in, you know, Biden, uh, age territory. And Biden, uh, said yesterday that, uh, a hundred Americans died from COVID. A hundred Americans. Cut number two.
4: We need to address prevention and the root cause of the pain and trauma that a lot of people are feeling, like loneliness and isolation, social media and online bullying, gun violence. And there's still we're still feeling the profound loss of the pandemic, as I mentioned, of over 100 people dead. That's 100 empty chairs around the kitchen table. Every single loss, there are so many people left behind and broken hearted.
0: It's not like he says it and then he catches himself, like "Oh, what am I talking about?" A hundred. Uh, he he repeats it. Um, and uh, I I I don't know about you, uh, and and we can agree to disagree about this. And please don't take this as an insult about age in general, because I'm no spring chicken myself. But I do. N- I, I cannot believe that this country is in the hands of and even facing another president in his 70s and 80s. There's nothing wrong with being in your 70s and 80s. And there's myriad things you can do. And there are people the same age as Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell who are way sharper than they are. But, but we are watching, and it's, it's out in the open. It's not like we don't know or, you know, we're not living in a country where our leaders are kept from us. We don't get to see them. They're on television every single day. All of them. And when I think about it, and I, I, I really said it poorly a second ago, these are not the people running the country, clearly, because these people couldn't run a meeting. These aren't people who could impose their will, even in a private, closed-door setting, much less in a public one. So increasingly, when you look at the the ancient Leadership of the House and Senate, when you look at the ancient current president, and, and imagine that we had Hillary running, we had Bernie Sanders running, Trump is almost in his 80s. I don't really think these people are running anything. I think, I think this is just a shell game. Where much younger, much more ambitious people, much more zealous and ideological people, are hiding behind old gray heads and faces. And with Biden, I think that's unavoidably. I, I, there's no, there's no getting around that. That these policies are not his policies. These beliefs are not his beliefs. He is he is trying to mouth the words to a song he has never heard, much less sung. But I think that may be a more widespread problem than we realize. You know, with the congressional leaders, it's it's all staff. It's, it's who's running the office. It's who's running the policy group. It's who's writing the bills. And, you know, I, again, this is not an indictment of or an attempt to be disrespectful about age. But most people, and I'm sure you've, you do this. Most people are gracious about and and candid about their age. And we right now are living in a moment when leaders and would-be leaders are telling us it's fine. It's fine to have a president who's in his 80s. No problem. Except we never had one for the first 250 years. Ah, but it's no problem. It's fine, 80's the new 50. Which I guess they do say that, right? It's hard. 210 uh, 599 Speaking about being too big to hide or too open to hide, um, are we reaching a point with the Biden family business where um, – I'm, I'm, this is the thing that fascinates me. I, if you're listening to this show, you follow the news. You're very up on all this stuff. I'm trying to figure out if we've reached the point where people that don't really pay attention are getting it. Um, there, is, there is always a tipping point in any political story it, where if it gets big enough and it goes on long enough, it goes from being something that just wonky people know about to being something that people that, you know, just check their phone once in a while or see the headlines, you know, uh, know about. And um, like, look at Bill Clinton. I mean, if you think about Bill Clinton, all the scandals, all the allegations going back to when he was governor of Arkansas, but the one that everyone remembers, because it's the one that everyone knew, was, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That was like, whoa, wait a minute, now I'm paying attention. you, you, You didn't interest me with Whitewater, you didn't interest me with moving money around and shell corporations, but, you know, the blue dress... Now you got me. And it was only when most people were talking about it that Bill Clinton started to, you know, started to own up to it. Joe Biden has repeatedly told us he has no knowledge, never talks about, has never had a conversation about business bit by bit that has been exposed as a lie or a series of lies that we, we talked yesterday about how they're changing it to has not been in business with um but but all of that is we know those are lies there are bank records there are there are fund transfer records uh there's damning evidence in uh emails and text messages there's highly credible uh whistleblowers there's FBI 1023s so are we at the point where um like bill clinton is joe biden at the point where he has to give the uh the 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 oval office speech that eventually clinton had to give remember where he said And I think it was in the summertime. I think it was around this time of year in 1998 where he said, okay, well, yeah, I did have a relationship with this woman and it was inappropriate and uh, it was wrong and I had bad judgment. Um, Are we at that point with Biden? Will we ever get to that point with Biden? So is this the moment when this story tips into the, the universe of people that are not normally very interested in current events, politics, don't really have a political label on them. And you know, there's a lot of stonewalling and there's a lot of uh, protection being provided by the the so-called journalists that should be digging into the story and instead uh, kind of building up firewalls around it. Um, but I, I think the Biden story is reaching that point or may already have reached that point where it's it's too big to hide. And that also means a challenge for the Republicans. Because as we talked about yesterday, um, at some point they're not going to be able to just say we want the facts. People are going to say, well, what are you going to do? You've got a lot of facts. And Kevin McCarthy said uh, over the weekend, or maybe it was uh, Friday, well, yeah, okay, you know, this could be an impeachment. Now, the impeachment starts in the House, but the actual impeachment trial would be in the Senate. And the senators are already saying we want no part of this, and I mean Republican senators. Here's a story from today's Washington Examiner: Republican senators pour cold water on McCarthy's Biden impeachment suggestion. Um, these are Republican members of the Senate. John Thune, Senate Majority, uh, uh, Senate Minority Whip. It's not on the radar screen over here. It's a high threshold. John Cornyn. Uh impeachment is getting to be a habit around here, isn't it? Like he's like he's tired of it, you know. Um Senator Todd Young of Indiana. Uh we've had a lot of these recently, haven't we? So he's telling the Cornyn joke. It's a very serious path, Mitt Romney. The bar for impeachment is high, and that hasn't been alleged at this stage. So these are the Republicans that you were told we needed to elect more of. Maybe you even sent money. And uh, you contributed. And you hoped and prayed they'd win the the midterms. And you've heard all your life, if we just had more Republicans, if we just had enough Republicans. Listen to what they're saying. We really don't want this. Please don't send this to us. You know, when I was a kid, we had a president who uh, said, I am not a crook. And uh, of course, he was perceived to be a crook by a lot of people. And then we had a president uh, who said I didn't do it, I never did it, and uh, people came to the conclusion eventually that he and his wife were both pretty crooked. Still are. Now we have the first family. It's getting worse. I mean, I long for the days when you could say, well, the president's a crook, but I'm sure his wife and family are all lovely people. Uh, they were talking to Ron DeSantis on Fox last night about um, all of this. I thought he gave a good answer. I want to play it for you. Um, uh, Jesse asked him about the, uh, the prospects of impeachment. As you heard me say, uh, Senate Republicans don't like it. They don't want to do it. They want no part of it. Uh, in fact, they, they they joke about it like, oh, we're doing too many of these. Um, this is what he said about it. Cut number
1: six. You look at they impeach Trump for a phone call. Are you trying to tell me Biden's conduct isn't as significant as that? It's way more significant. So they are absolutely within their rights to do that. I think what the corruption that's surrounding this family is really unprecedented uh, in the modern history of our country and the lack of interest. Uh, On this, from the FBI and the Department of Justice, it shows you weaponization. There's two sides to the coin. Yeah, on the one hand, they will weaponize against the mother going to a school board meeting in say Virginia and get the FBI. Uh, But on the other hand, if you're connected to the DC ruling class, man, you could have smoke coming out, and they will just turn a blind eye to it. There's no interest in investigating, uh, no zealousness with search warrants or any of this other stuff. Uh, So I think the. Republicans are going to have to bring some accountability uh, because we're not going to get it from the Garland uh, DOJ and the Christopher Ray FBI.
0: You know, I, um, I totally agree with that answer, and I think it's a really good answer and a well-crafted uh, answer. Um, and I, I don't know who you support for president or which candidate you like in the primaries or whatever, but this is what, this, th- this is how Republicans need to talk about this stuff. And then act on it. Um, I I am done with Republicans, and you should be too, who are tired. Who um, think we've had too many impeachments. Who are concerned about the, the high bar. In case they don't know, and I'm sure they do, it is a high bar, unless it's a Republican president. They're all worse than Hitler and war criminals, but you know, other than that. Yeah, it's a high bar. That's why you have the trial in the House. Uh, and the and the fact finding rather in the House and then the trial in the Senate. It's a high bar to prove any crime. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's a it's kind of a nonsense statement. Which one of them said that? I think it was John Thune. It's kind of a nonsense statement. You know what they're really saying? We don't want to do this. We want to be the good guys. We don't want to play like the Democrats did. We don't want to have to impeach Biden. Like, like we, we don't want to go after him. Because we like the feeling of, not, of being the party that doesn't impeach the opposing president. Well, good for you. And look, n- nobody listening to this show right now wants constant impeachment. But it wasn't my choice to elect a criminal syndicate to the White House. So now that you've done that, or we've done that, or somebody's done that, or the voting machines have done that, do your damn jobs! Don't tell me you're tired. I can believe that you are because a lot of them look and sound exhausted. Do you notice that? I don't just mean Mitch McConnell, who, poor guy, I don't know what's wrong with him, but they just—they are—they're tired. They're gassed. Even the ones that are not chronologically that old, they're they're, they're, just—they're—they're not fighters. The Santa sounds like a fighter. The main reason they had him on was to talk about the um, absolutely histrionic attack on the Florida education curriculum from Vice President Harris. They're trying to say, as we told you yesterday, that Florida is going to teach that slavery was good for the slaves. And this is his response to that, cut number five.
1: The interesting thing about this is Florida eliminated critical race theory from our K through 12 schools. We got to stop indoctrinating kids in this country and we can't be teaching them to hate America. But in that bill, we were accused of not wanting to teach African-American history. It actually required that that be done, including talking about racial discrimination. And so these standards really were born out of that. And these are very thorough standards done by African-American history scholars, is no agenda here, it is just the truth. Uh, and they talk in gory detail a lot of the bad um, in American history, including, of course, the injustice of slavery. Uh, but she is trying to perpetuate a hoax. And I know they're using it to attack me because Biden's administration and Harris has been attacking me since they got in office and they're always attacking Florida. But they're really impugning uh, the work of people like Dr. Allen, who were not involved politically. Were just trying to do a good job and produced really robust standards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... I, I I really like the interview. I really like the answers. Um, I think you should be careful with what you're being told about Ron DeSantis. There's a pattern to all the reporting, I, and and I don't know if you've picked this up or not, but um, his his campaign is cratering. His campaign is a disaster. He's flopped. Uh, there are stories in the news about how he's laying off uh, campaign staff. I I can tell you over many campaigns it is completely not a big deal when these campaigns hire and then fire and then reduce staff and make decisions to move a bunch of people from this part of the country to work in that part of the country. It's a work in progress. It doesn't stay static. It doesn't stay the same. Um, I would be more interested in the fact that right now President Biden really doesn't have a campaign organization it appears right now like Joe Biden is not taking donations or putting a ground game in place. It sounds to me and looks to me like Joe Biden is going to be in a basement uh, next year. That's the plan for him. But Ron DeSantis is in second place in a very crowded field. He is behind literally the biggest behemoth in American politics. But he's ahead of everyone else. I don't think he's in bad shape at all. I, a lot of people think he's going to run again in four years if he doesn't win next year. I think that too, uh, as Reagan did and many others. Uh, so just don't – I mean, if you, if you don't like him, you don't like him. But don't don't get discouraged by what they're telling you about Ron DeSantis. It
7: is now <laughs> one, three, two, one. It's the final
8: Music. Music. Top 10 board. We'll start with number 10.
5: <laughs>
0: we're going back to this week in 1973. Where were you in 73? I was getting ready for my third grade year. Probably playing a lot of wiffle ball and matchbox cars and hot wheels. Here are the top 10 songs from this week in 1973 and we started number 10 with former Beatle George Harrison and a song that was on its way down from number one this week at number 10 give me love give me peace on earth song that consistently stayed in his live set list uh, throughout his uh, career. and song he says is a prayer and personal statement between me, the Lord, and whoever likes it. At number 10, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth. Uh, It was uh, a song that had uh, big momentum this week in 1973. It's at number 9, but it's going to be at number 1 very soon from the movie The Poseidon Adventure. Maureen McGovern and the Morning After.
5: To be a morning after. If we can hold on through the night, we have a chance to find the sunshine. Let's keep on looking for the light.
0: Song that would win the Oscar for Best Song. 1973. At number eight, Bette Midler is covering the old Andrews sisters' hit, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. the company jumps
5: <laughs> when he plays <laughs> Reveille, he's the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. A root, a tooth, a tooth, a tooth, a tooth, a tooth, he blows eight to the bar. In boogie rhythm, he can't blow a no less bass and guitar playing with him. And the company jumps when he plays Reveille, he's the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy.
0: The kind of pays tribute to Beat Me Daddy 8 to the bar. It's a Boogie Woogie Classic in the hands of Bette Midler this week at number 8, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Paul Simon is at number 7 this week with Kodachrome. Paul Simon opened up last month in an interview to the fact that he is suffering from very serious hearing loss and is trying to figure out how to play live again Uh, with that. He told Mojo Magazine that he just suddenly lost all the hearing in one ear and is struggling uh, but wants to get back to where he can sing live and play live. He says he doesn't want to sound like a Paul Simon cover band, so wish Paul Simon well in that. Kodachrome, the song at uh, number seven. Number six is Seals and Croft and Diamond Girl from an album of the same name. Your big 73 album, Diamond Girl, which also gave us the song Summer Breeze. and That takes us to number five on the 73 countdown. It's Billy Preston and Will It Go Round in Circles. One of his two number one hits as a solo performer. But, of course, Billy Preston's played with everybody over the years. Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, of course, the Beatles and Stones, and co-wrote You Are So Beautiful with Joe Cocker. Will It Go Around in Circles is one of my all-time favorite songs from the 70s. you want to talk about a 70s-sounding song? Well, here's one right here. It's the number four song this week in 1973. It's Deep Purple, Smoke on the Water. I know in a lot of magazines about guitar playing and guitars, people say that uh, Richie Blackmore's uh, playing on this song is considered like top 10, top 20 all time for guitar virtuosity. Smoke on the Water, Deep Purple's at number four this week in 1973. The number three hit this week, also very 70s, it's Three Dog Night and Shambhala. Dog Knight singing about a mythical mountain kingdom in Tibet, Shambhala, the number three song this week in 1973. Oh, well, they were on top of the world in 1973, but that's not the name of the number two song from the Carpenters. It's Yesterday Once More. In a lot of music and movies from the early 70s, you get this big nostalgia push. I think maybe, you know, kind of some of the issues of the 70s made people nostalgic for the 50s and 60s. This song is all about that. It's basically uh, reminiscing about songs of a generation gone by and references several big 60s hits. Yesterday, Once More by The Carpenters at number two. Uh, Just a great song. And that takes us to number one for
5: 1973.
0: Jim Croce is telling right a boy, story baby, like no one else could do. B- Roy, and uh, he, had, he had these songs, he had the corner on these songs, in my opinion. I mean, you think about uh, Don't Mess Around with Jim and Bad Bad Leroy Brown. He tells the story, Jim Croce, in the only number one single he would have before he passed away later in the year 1973. Uh, certainly a singer with great success before he died, and even more, uh, in the years after he died. Jim Croce with the number one song this week in 1973, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. We'll hear more of it coming up.
5: Leroy like a a gone.
0: For folks that listen to the podcast, or really anybody, we do have the Jack Chat line, uh, always open at 210 599 5550. And this is a way to leave a comment for us to play back on the show. So you call 210-599-5550. Give us your first name and your city or town. Um, and then whatever comment, whether it's something we talked about or didn't talk about or you didn't get in on it or you're listening to the podcast and it's after the fact, 210-599-5550. Uh, for the Jack Chat line. And thanks to everybody. We get great emails uh, and great feedback on these countdowns. Glad you like them. We will keep them uh, coming. We'll have another one next week. I, w- I was not expecting to enjoy this as much as I did. Not that I don't like Tucker Carlson's uh, Twitter show, but th- this was very interesting. He He took a ride in L.A., in the back of an SUV, with Ice Cube, the rapper. And um, can you imagine two more opposite people on your screen than Tucker Carlson and Ice Cube? But they have this very nice rapport, and one of the things they were talking about was, um, Ice Cube is a businessman as well as an artist, and he he started up, uh, and as been very successful uh, with a um, basketball league that the NBA is completely ignoring. And they talked about the the irony of that uh, in this uh, interview with Tucker Carlson cut number eight.
2: It does seem like the big th- I'm not pitching your business, but it, it does seem like you, the idea behind
1: it would be consistent with what the NBA says they're about?
8: Without a doubt. You know, the NBA is full of great slogans and they, you know, they write Black Lives Matter on the court and they do all those things, but pretty full of when, it's, when the rubber meets the road, you know?
2: Maybe that's why they put the slogans on the court, so they won't have to do anything.
8: Just a yeah. thought, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's as easy as saying, we're gonna donate a hundred million dollars to. You know, it's like an easy thing to do. All they gotta do is call up the graphics guy, and and approve the comp. So you're starting to make me think this could be a scam. I'm just throwing that out there. I'm just saying it's easy for them to put that on the court. It takes a little more effort to really care to to work with a, a league like the Big Three. You know, you really gotta want to make a difference. It
0: is so easy to issue a slogan. You know, we call it on this show virtue signaling. And it's also very easy to do virtue donating, right? How many times have you heard somebody, politician, Hollywood star, corporate person, we're donating $100 million uh, to facilitate greater equity and and that is their moment to preen and shine and, and don a halo. No one ever follows up on where did the money go? Who got it? Did it help the people you claimed you were going to help? And they got into that whole conversation, uh, too. Tucker Carlson and Ice Cube and growing up in L.A. and listening to the promises of politicians. And he's very candid about how hopeful he got with the election of Barack Obama. Listen to this, cut number seven.
1: Three decades and billions of dollars later. It's still a tough place. How do you think politicians in Los Angeles
8: have done running the city? It's pretty much the same people running it the same way. Politicians only really pay attention to the people that give them money. Everybody else is kind of an extra in their movie. We love you in the same but we can do the same.
2: Yeah, I do. Do you ever give money to politicians? No. Why?
8: I don't believe in politicians. Politicians have hidden hidden agendas they owe a lot of people a lot of favors the more money you give them the more you you're listened to so you've never
0: fallen for a politician
8: um i can't say that you know i've had hope and you know dreams that you know this guy is gonna be the guy what'd you think of obama when he got elected you know for the first time i felt proud that america took that step Yep.
9: Yeah.
8: Uh, i didn't think that And so that was a moment in time. Um, But then, uh, look around; years go by, and not much, not much change uh, for people I know, people I care about. Yeah, the places.
0: I mean, he he has experienced this experienced this personally. You can tell that he knows these streets, he, he's not just from them, he knows them. And as they're driving along and he's telling you I used to live there and so and so used to live over here next door, it, it, you, you realize the places that should be benefiting from all the political talk and all the pronouncements and donations are worse than they've ever been, worse than they have ever been. and. Okay, politicians lie, I got it. Where did all the money go? Where's all the money? Where's all the government money? Where's all the privately donated money? Where's all the endowment money? Where's all the, we're pledging, we're promising, we're going to invest in, wh- where is it? These places show no evidence of that. And it's not just L.A. Uh, it's the Tucker Carlson Ice Cube uh kind of road tour video you can easily find it um if you want to search it out listen to the whole thing and i and i do recommend that um i uh of all the things that have happened today and so many things have obviously the biggest news story is the the uh collapse or the unraveling or the uh, suspension is probably the more precise word of the hunter biden uh plea deal and the basic Think that there's two basic things I would take away from today about that, um, and, and they contributed to why there is no plea deal and why instead of pleading guilty to some lower charges, lesser charges, he pled not guilty to the more serious ones. Um, one is Hunter Biden is still under investigation, according to the Department of Justice lawyers in that courtroom. So when you hear people say, and Democrats have been saying it, and they're saying it even today, oh, these, uh, these accusations about Hunter Biden, this is old news, and it's already been looked into, and it was looked into by no less than the Trump people, and they didn't do anything with it. And if anybody would have, blah, 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 blah. But this is the DOJ in front of a judge today admitting Yeah, he's still under investigation. There could be more charges against him. So it's not old news, despite their attempts to gaslight it. The other thing that I think is interesting, or that I take away from this um, today, besides the fact that, yes, he's still uh, under uh, investigation, is that um, his uh position, if you will, the the position that he's in. And I said earlier, and I still stand by this, he personally is not in the kind of jeopardy that um, you or I would be facing these these charges. But you you realize when you watch what happened, and Steve Hilbig broke it down for us uh on the, about an hour and a half ago on the show. The reason they were caught off guard and the reason they didn't get their act together is because people like the Bidens expect the doors to be held for them, expect the path to be smoothed for them, expect the deference uh, that you and I would, would, would maybe hope for, pray for, be grateful for. Uh, today they went in presuming they had something because of who they are, and they didn't get it. And it's not the end of the world for them, and it's not the end of Joe Biden's campaign or any of the -the over-the-top things you'll hear on Fox, but it it is an indication that these people really do think they've got the world by a string. Um, We can talk about that, and um, we can talk about the Tucker Carlson Ice Cube conversation yeah all the good intentions all the federal dollars all the programs all the donations all the all the times sports stars and sports leagues have pledged to the inner city and here's a here's a man who came up through that neighborhood through that life and he says we never saw that that never came And I give Ice Cube a lot of credit for saying that out loud because there have to be a lot of people who grew up just like he did in places just like he did here in San Antonio. And they know that money gets pledged, that money gets appropriated, donated. But the people for whom it is pledged and donated aren't getting it or they aren't seeing the benefits of it. It means somebody's getting it. It means there's graft. It means somebody's on the, on the take. But they're not getting the benefits of it. It also means, by the way, that you can't fix these things with money. You know, if you think just about since George Floyd in 2020, just I mean, Ice Cube was going further back than that, but let's just say just in the three years since the summer of 2020, all the sloganeering of the sports leagues, all the preaching of the rock stars and the actors and the movies and television and all the pronouncements from both political parties. We're gonna get it done, we're gonna do it, we're gonna... Those places are worse off now than they were before George Floyd died. Now you go into a store, if there still is a store, in that neighborhood, if it hasn't been burned down, if the company that owns the chain hasn't closed all their locations in your neck of the woods, now you go into that store and everything's behind glass and padlocks and you you can't even touch merchandise, which is not only an inconvenient way to shop, but think about what that would do to you psychologically. You and I go to a Walgreens, an H-E-B, what have you, whatever, we're Taking things, putting them in the wagon, the cart, the box, whatever. What do you call the thing? The little, uh, what do you call the little thing you carry around? The basket? You go to these stores. Could I have uh, some shaving blades? <laughs> May I have a can of this? May I have a box? I mean, all the good intentions, all the talk, where, where has it left them? And it's going to take a long time for people to realize that the people they keep electing and re-electing and the promises that are echoing in their heads are never kept, are never kept. I think it's ironic that um, politicians think it is more helpful to tear down this country to lie and distort its history than to help people in its present. What are you doing for me now? What can you do for my community now? What can you do for my kids now? Because what's hurting is not slavery. What's hurting is not history books. and we know that right and i think eventually the people that to whom this is happening will 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 are realizing it and will realize it it's going to take a long time um so that's going on we can talk about that now the other thing when i was putting together our 73 countdown today I I really started thinking about the 70s. I was in a very 70s mood today. I didn't wear, like, bell bottoms or anything. My bell bottoms are at the dry cleaners. But um, I was thinking about the 70s. When you think of the 1970s, and Don Cooper, I'm going to ask you this, too. What is the first thing you think of when you think of the decade of the 1970s? Whether you were alive in the 70s or you've just heard people talk about it, and it was before your time, what's the number one thing, first thing you think of, don't even think, just first thing that comes to mind, 1970s, what would that be? Disco, disco. A mm-hmm. lot of people would say disco. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, um, maybe some of the clothes too, right? Like mm-hmm. the leisure suits and the. Do you know what I think of first? And this this is maybe weird. I don't know. The first thing I think of when I think of the seventies was that was the greatest decade for police shows that we've ever had. <laughs> was that not? That was the high water mark for cop shows. I mean, you think about all True. the all the great True. TV shows in the '70s. We never had a decade like that. Hawaii Five O, Adam Twelve, Kojak, Ber, you know, Beretta, mm-hmm. the Manics, the one that Rockford really comes Files. one that comes to my mind, Starsky and Hutch. There you go. I mean, it was, um, it, and and you had great police shows, and you had great uh, Private Eyes. What is your favorite? What would be your favorite seventies cop show, Don? What would you say? Just off the top of your head. Probably Rockford Files. Mm. Yeah. That was I think I think that's above all all of them. I mean, the guy the guy had the Firebird. Mm-hmm. He lived in a mobile home on the beach in California. He had an answering machine, which I know doesn't sound like much now, but to a kid in the seventies growing up in Massachusetts, lives on the beach. Has a firebird and an answering machine. That was like having a, I don't know, that, that was like having a, a, a I don't know, a, 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 a 3D printer would be having now. You know what I mean? It was like so cutting edge. We didn't have an answering machine in my house. <laughs> we, had the, we, we had a pad of paper next to the phone. That's what we had. But how could you go yeah. wrong with, uh, with the lead actor, James Gardner? And he was so great, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he just, you believed he was that guy. Uh, Private Eye, Jim Rockford. All right, so that's my question. 210-599-5555. Best police or private eye show of the 70s? What would be your favorite? Again, whether you were alive in that decade or you've watched reruns since or maybe both. Um, I I did my top five today on my um, just-a-minute video, which you can see at KTSA.com. Uh, My top five from the 70s, Cannon is at number five. Do you remember Cannon? Played by William Conrad. He was a private detective. He was a rather um, husky fellow. Uh, There wasn't any other show like this on television. He just was not, most private eyes were physical, young, in shape, you know. Cannon had to solve crimes with his head because his body wasn't going to get it done. Like, he could outsmart the bad guys, but he couldn't chase them, if you know what I'm saying. So yeah, candidate number five. Number four would be Kojak, because Telly Savalas was so cool. By the way, maybe one of the best-dressed people to ever appear on television, right? So Telly Savalas, Kojak, he's a New York City detective. Number three, I put the Rockford Files. <clears throat> number two, I put Mannix, and the thing about Mannix is... um The first year Mannix was on, it was a different show. He he was a guy that worked for a big corporate, like a big investigative corporation. I forget the name of it, Unitech or had some name like that. And and he was like a guy that hated his boss and hated the company, and they made him do investigations, but he had to do it their way, and he was always chafing. And they had computers, and that was very cutting-edge in 1967 or 68 or whatever it was. So after that first year, they jettisoned all that. They made him a private investigator at his own little office. He had a secretary, Peggy. And then it became a great show. I had a chance to interview uh, Mike Connors, who played him. And uh, one of my favorite things ever to do in radio was was interview uh, Mike Connors about, uh, this was, I guess, about 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. Anyway, uh, Mannix at number two. Um, and my number one 70s show is Hawaii Five-0. Um, the single coolest human being alive in the 1970s had to be Jack Lord, right? I mean, just come on, right? Who? What guy didn't want to be Jack Lord? And you had the beautiful setting of Hawaii. I wonder how many vacations and, and, and uh, honeymoons were inspired by watching that show. It was a beautifully you know, film show it was shot in Hawaii. He had the cool car, he was dressed to the nines, he had great cops working with him, he was tough and smart and he was always getting the better of Woe Fat. Remember Woe Fat? So yeah, Hawaii five I would say. <laughs> 25 of KTSA. So we're, uh, you know, we're kind of in the 70s today. I don't know. The, based on what's in the news right now, it seems like the 70s is a good place to be. We didn't think that in the 70s, but we're thinking it now. Anyway, um, what was your uh, favorite cop or detective uh, show from the 1970s? 210-599-5555. Linda is on KTSA. Hi, Linda. I'm good. How you doing?
7: I'm doing great, thanks.
0: I'm sure you're too young to remember the 70s, but you probably heard about them.
7: I remember a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> good answer. What's your favorite?
7: McLeod.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, tell people McLeod. who don't know what McLeod was about.
7: Well... McLeod was a fish out of water. He wasn't a city slicker like Telly Savalas or didn't show street cred like Beretta. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. a homegrown country kind of guy that yeah. was just comfortable with who he was and wore cowboy hat, cowboy suit in the city. Yeah. He didn't take no gut from anybody, but he was a quiet strength and he got the job done.
0: Yeah, it was, it was, a, the premise was he was a, like a sheriff from New Mexico and he was working with the New York City Police Department. I have no idea why that would, why that would be the case, but, um, and, and Dennis Weaver played him and he was, yeah, that was a, that was a great show. I, I, that was a show that was in a, um, rotation. They did a thing called the NBC Mystery Movie of the Week and they had like two or three, I think, uh, one of them was uh, the one with, uh, I can't think of it now, with Rock Hudson. McMillan and Wife was one of oh, yeah. them. Remember that? And yep. McCloud would be on like every second or third week uh, in that. But, yeah, that was a great one, Linda. Good good choice. Uh, 1970 to 77 for McCloud. Uh, 210-599-5555. Uh, Roberts on KTSA. Hi, Robert. Hi, Jack. I love your show, man. I listen to you oh, every
9: afternoon. Oh, thank you thank all you on my way home from work. I'm, I'm here in Laredo, Texas, listening, man. I love it. You're the best one of all all the commentators on 55. Oh, that
0: that's nice. Thank you.
9: Hey, uh, I I got I I had one, but I got two.
0: Yeah, one let's hear them.
9: Charlie's Angels.
0: Oh yes, yes.
9: What better? What a hour great
0: hour what hour a great hour. idea for a show that you probably couldn't make today, right? They wouldn't put they wouldn't put it on today.
9: <laughs> no, that was going to, you know, my young age. I'm about your age, yep. so yep. it was nice to see three beautiful women sobbing. Who was down. your
0: favorite?
9: Farrah Fawcett. Yeah. Yeah. Corpus Christi yeah. Girl, you know There
0: you go. There was no one like Farrah Fawcett. One one the same after she left that show. What was your other favorite from the seventies?
9: A tongue in cheek show. Barney Miller. Barney Miller, yes.
0: Funny show. That was it was always fascinating to me that they never went anywhere. The entire show happened in the in the office, right?
9: Yes, yes. It was so I mean,
0: funny. that's probably the only police show like that where they never went out on a call, they were never in a shootout, they were, they never went anywhere. But it worked. It was it, it, it you you kind of you kind of used your imagination about everything else and they just stayed in that office.
9: Yes, all the characters had different uh, personalities.
0: Yeah, that was uh, a great it, cast: it Abe Vigoda true. and Jack Sue and uh, Yeah, Hal Linden. Yeah, those are two good delicious. ones. Robert, thank you so much I, for those. I love both of those: Charlie's Angels and Barney Miller, which was on, I think, was on NBC, if I remember. Um, 210, 599, or maybe ABC. I think it was an, yeah, it was an ABC show. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five favorite seventies police show. What is yours? And Carl is next on the radio. Hi, Carl.
6: Hey, how you doing tonight? Good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so the last guy took one of mine, but uh, Barney Miller was a comedy. It was really yes. funny. Uh, nice. I used to watch that with my dad. Um, also, the Rockford Files was awesome. Uh, yeah, I thought it was funny because he had, like you said earlier. Yeah, the answering machine, the cool car, but he always seemed to be broke for some reason.
0: He was always right? broke. So, yeah,
5: yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I, another one that is uh, from the '70s was Gunsmoke, right? Mm. That was still on in the '70s, but mm-hmm. in the cop yeah. show. But it's an old, it's a western, yeah.
0: right? Yeah, kind of a yeah. western law enforcement. Yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. Yeah, he was and, always uh, broke.
0: That's right. I forgot about that. And it's funny that when you think about it now, we yeah. wanted to be him. But yeah. he was always like the the creditors were always after him, and his checks yeah. were bouncing. Yeah. Remember the answering machine message at the start of the show was always somebody he was yep. in trouble with?
6: Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. Yeah, he, he had, all he had his problems. Shows. Yep. And, hey, he, real quick, one of these days you should do something on the 80s cup shows. There's a lot of good ones in there. In there we too. will.
0: We will. That's a great idea. Sure. I'm, a, I'm a definitely going to sure. do that, Carl. Thank you for listening, though, and I appreciate it. Talking about '70s cop shows, really was the best decade. I mean, there there been there have been TV procedural, police procedural shows as long as there's been TV. I mean, the very earliest uh, TV shows were adaptations of of radio series that were westerns and police shows and things like that. But really, the '70s were kind of the high water mark for these shows. So many great ones: John Likes Rockford, Starsky and Hutch, Cannon, Hawaii Five O lot of votes um for charlie's angels getting a lot of a lot of calls on that um brad's uh, barney miller beretta police story rockford files starsky and hutch um and what are yours two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five john is on k t s a hi john
7: hi
6: how you doing um you are missing two shows from the 70s that changed television both okay. completely different in their approach but both incredibly um intellectual the first one was colombo mm-hmm. in the 70s he they owned the 70s mm. and to me the, the i mean it was intellectual it was smart it was really thinking man's uh television but mm-hmm. then on the on the on the on the Absolute opposite end of that was all in the family. And that was, of course, a okay. Well, we're talking about
0: police shows, though. Hold, hold on. I don't, you might not have heard us here. We're talking about police shows. So all in the Family sure, on a Columbo police show
6: would be my favorite. Then don't okay. go with Colombo. Yeah. That's always been okay. my favorite. Thank you. Okay. So
0: much. All right. Thank, 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 boy. Thank you, John. I don't think we missed Colombo. I'm pretty sure we mentioned Colombo, <laughs> but okay. All right. You know what I find funny about Colombo was that whole little, um, like, the whole way in which his entire um, investigative technique in every episode, and I'm not saying this is a criticism, but every episode was basically Columbo is underestimated by the crook, right? So he's got the, the, the grungy overcoat and the crappy car and the lazy eye and the shambling way of talking and every week, whoever the bad guy is, and they had some of the best character actors on that show as villains, right? You know, those people, you know them, but you don't know their names. So every week, there's a villain, and he's getting away with it, and he's rich, and he's sniveling and sneering. And then, one more thing, sir.
2: Uh, look,
0: look, can I ask you one more thing? And then, bam. And at the end, they always realize, oh, this guy is Brilliant. I thought he was an idiot. You know, they think they're fooling him. They're laughing behind his back. And that's how he solves it. That fact, you could probably write a a book about life advice, you know. Just get people to underestimate you. Go through life being underestimated, and whatever it is you do, you'll be successful. It's the Columbo theory. It is a great show. It's a good choice. Uh, Patrick is on the Jack Riccardi Show on 550 and one zero seven one. KTSA, the screen has locked up, Don Cooper. Let's take Patrick on line number four for me, if you would, please. Patrick, welcome to the show. Good afternoon.
8: It's good to be here. Uh, One of my favorite shows back in that time period was The Streets of San Francisco with Michael Douglas and Carl Malden. That was
0: a great show. They were were partners, right? They were like... uh, they then like Michael Douglas was like the younger cop and he didn't really he didn't really get the way Carl Malden did things, right?
8: Yeah. And and in some ways it's kinda like Yoda and one of the Jedi, you know. The young guy <laughs> and Carl Malden would always would always balance him out and right. he'd go off on a tangent and Carl Carl Malden would say, Now hold on, hold on, let's think about yeah. this. So yeah. I always thought that was pretty enjoyable.
0: I like the Yoda reference. Yeah, that's that's true. That was a brilliant idea, really, to put these two together. I mean, who would think to put, you know, those two together and um and make that the the premise of it, the way they played off each other? That was a great show, Streets of San Francisco. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate that. Uh, 210-599-5555. Mike is on KTSA. Hi, Mike.
8: Hey, Jack. Hey, Mike. Hi. Uh, uh... Well, Colombo got taken from me, and then Streets of San Francisco. So my. Well, you're
0: still allowed to say them if other people said them. They can still be your favorite shows.
8: Yeah, I said those two, and now my backup is the. It was the Mod Squad. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I watched that. The Mod Squad.
0: Oh yeah, I remember the Mod Squad. I, I didn't see a lot of it, but I, I, I think I saw it a few times. Uh, Peggy Lipton, yeah. right?
6: Oh, that's right. Passed away recently.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. Both she was so beautiful.
6: Yeah. Married to Quincy Lee, I believe.
0: Quincy Jones, yeah, Man- that's right. Mannix was a great one. Um, yeah. I, I, You know, when I interviewed Mike Connors, this was about maybe mid-'90s, um, the thing I had to ask him about, I mean, I had to ask him about the cars on Mannix because he had so many great cars. But the other thing I had to ask him was, I don't know if you remember, when you would watch Mannix... He's a private eye, and he, he was very physical. He was a he was a war veteran, and he was a karate a practitioner of karate. So, in every episode, there's there's you know, fighting and violence, and he gets hit over the head in I think every episode, and he he laughed and he said, "Yeah, I mean, if if somebody in real life took as many blows to the head as Mannix took, they'd be you know they'd be." In a, in a hospital room somewhere. I mean, he wouldn't be, would be able to function. He gets knocked unconscious, like, almost every week, for years. But yeah, just a great show. Um, the character of Peggy, who was kind of like his, his Della Street, was just so good, such an, an interesting choice. And, um, and Like I said, they, they kind of rescued that show after they got it away from the, the concept of it in the first year. It was completely different. I don't think it would have lasted, but it became a classic. And those are the ones we're talking about. 210-599-5555, your favorite 70s uh, TV show. Um, We were talking about uh, Canon. Steve says, Canon was portly. Always looked forward to Adam-12 and Dragnet. TJ Hooker. Now, TJ Hooker, I think, was the 80s, I think. That's the one with William Shatner, right? Yeah. Uh, 210-599-5555. Have we... Has anyone mentioned um policewoman yet? I don't think we've mentioned policewoman with Angie Dickinson. That was considered quite, you know, quite groundbreaking. Um definitely I don't know and that's one I don't I mean all of these are are still on somewhere. Some streaming service or nostalgia channel has all of these. I don't know if policewoman really is still on somewhere. I haven't seen it. Uh let's see Tom is on the radio on KTSA. Tom, good afternoon.
6: Hey, Jack. Um, that's a good mention. I like Woman as well. Uh, my favorite, though, was uh, really early 70s, and it was uh, James Franciscus as Longstreet.
0: Oh, wow. Now, I remember James Franciscus, but tell me about Longstreet.
6: Longstreet was really interesting. He was uh, an insurance investigator is what he was, and he'd been rendered blind by a, uh, a bomb, and it killed his wife, but he survived. And uh, oh. he went on to just yeah, and he had the the coolest thing to me. I was pretty young at the time, but he had a seeing eye dog that was his uh, partner. And so I always <sighs> found that kind of plot structure to be interesting. And they ran it. I forget what night of the week it came on, but they did it back to back with Ironside. So it was oh, interesting yeah. that they had the two that they had the two disabled, um, you know, uh, investigators on like back to back. But that's very you know, interesting.
0: To- I just looked it up here. It says it was only on for one season. Uh, so it must have been really yeah. good that you remember it because that's usually not enough time for people to kind of have an impression, you know.
6: No, yeah, it just it, they had a pilot and then yeah, it was on. I, I watched it with my sister because at that time I was probably only about six years old, but I really was intrigued by uh, you know, the fact that he uh, you know, had that handicap and then he had the dog too, and then we would watch Ironside after that.
0: I have to say, as a kid, I don't know, I probably I probably wasn't a very bright kid, but I really thought. Raymond Burr was in a wheelchair. I just, I don't know why. Well, yeah. it, it it didn't occur to me that you would act like you were in a wheelchair. Like, I just assumed, if somebody's in a wheelchair is because they have to be. And.
5: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, so, especially at
3: that
6: age, right? When you're just a little kid.
0: Yeah, I'm just like, oh, that's right. I, terrible. What happened to Perry Mason? He's in a wheelchair now. But uh, yeah, that's interesting, Longstreet, and uh, Ironsides was a great one, too. Uh, appreciate that, Tom. Thank you for calling our show. Uh, 210-599-5555. Hello, Karen.
7: Hi, Jack. How are you?
0: I'm um, good, thank you. How are you doing?
7: I'm doing good. Do
0: <laughs> you got a I favorite from the 70s? A,
7: yes. I actually have a couple, and I'm not sure if one actually qualifies, but Rockwood Files. Um, oh, yeah. With uh, James Garner. He was always so cool. Always liked that show. And then uh, Kojak. Yes. The other one. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Both of those were in the 70s. Who loves you, baby? Remember that? Yes.
7: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He was actually kind of a sexy, ball-headed guy.
0: (laughs) uh, Well, it's funny you say that because I was just thinking, now a lot of guys go with the, you know, shaven... Head, scalp, whatever look, but I don't think it was as common when he did it. Like I think he was kind of a pioneer in the, in the Baldy look, right?
7: Yeah, I, I think so. Yes, yes. And and you're right his now, brother. Uh, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say I think his brother started in that with him mm-hmm. yep. and had like a full head of hair. Yes. So, and so it's kind of you know to see the 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 spectrum of hair and no hair. It, it's, it's, I, it, was was always, it,
0: always, it was always amazing to me that they were related because they didn't look anything alike.
7: Right. And I don't know. Maybe the hair had something to do with it. Who knows? Maybe,
0: maybe so. Maybe so. Those are good choices, both of them, Karen. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think his brother always had, like, plants on his desk in the police station and stuff. He was always watering plants. I don't know. 210-599-5555. Mike is on the radio. Hi, Mike. Hello. Hey, Mike.
7: Hey, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
7: I'm doing good. I just wanted to say that uh, one of my favorite shows from I think it was the seventies, and I may be mixed up, but was Beretta.
0: Oh yeah, Robert Blake.
7: Yeah, I don't. Know, I don't know if uh, if Fred added an element to the, to the show or not. But <laughs> Fred I was the bird, right?
4: Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was cool. I thought it was, as a kid, I thought that was cool. You know, I'm, I think I would have rather had Rockford's Firebird uh, than have a oh, pet bird. Ro- but...
7: Rockford was number two. Uh, Rockford yeah. was my, the ringer on my phone for years.
0: Oh, there you go. Very good choice. That's a very cool <laughs> ringtone. Mike, thank you. Both both good choices. Thanks for the call. Um, Adrian is on KTSA. Hi,
2: Adrian. Hey, Adrian. I'm a, I, I, hey, Jack. Uh, mine, mine was back in the, uh, the later 70s was CHIPS, the uh, California Highway Patrol. Oh, yeah. It was like 19, 1977, 70, I was about 12 years old. And yeah. uh, Eric Estrada was kind of like a, kind of a bad boy police officer. And then mm-hmm. his supervisor, John, John Baker, I think it was Larry Wilcox, mm-hmm. had to, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much like rein him and whatever. And. There was always a typical like pile up on the on the highway, and then they went into like you know solving crimes and all that stuff, but that was the one I remember because it was one that was actually mine as a kid. Uh, my dad liked Ironside, he liked uh, cannon, he liked Mannix and all that, but this was something for for us and I remember it came out like on Saturday and it was like a lineup of the um, of chips it was after that was like I want to say the love boat and then fantasy Island you know, it was it was like, it was like this. NBC had like this set up set lineup <laughs> that we'd all like race home, like you know, we'd be riding our bike yeah, on the street, and yeah. we'd be like we've got to get home to watch Chips. and then after yeah. that, we've got to watch you know, the love boat and fantasy island. But that one was, um, I think it ran for like maybe like six or seven seasons, whatever. But that was, was uh, a good, yeah, that it was
0: point, a good show, yeah, you're yeah. right, yeah. It was very very unique, uh, and you're right, the the partners were on motorcycles. It was kind of like Adam-12 on motorcycles, I guess you could say. But, yeah, Chips was a great one. Adrian good one. thank you for the call. Appreciate all of these. Hey, if you don't get through, by the way, remember, you can hit the Jack Chat line, leave me your favorite 70s cop show, and we'll play those back. It's uh, 210-599-5550 for the Jack Chat line. All right, on the JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, do you approve or disapprove? Of Governor Abbott's floating border wall, 90% approve, 10% disapprove. New JR poll question tomorrow. We get started live at four or find the Jack Riccardi show on demand anytime at KTSA.com. As a podcast, we counted down the top 10 hits from 1973 a little while ago on the show. And on our way out tonight, we're going to leave you with the man from the south side of Chicago who owns a custom Lincoln Continental and a Cadillac Eldorado Two bad, bad Leroy Brown. Woo!